Well, good morning. Um, we're going to be back in the book of Galatians. Um, we're going to be focusing on Galatians uh, for my lessons outside of the book of Numbers. And I want to start in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Um, and I may end up reading these verses continuously just to kind of reestablish some context and help us to get into uh, the context whenever we're um, studying this letter. Just kind of get an idea of what's going on, what Paul is addressing, what's unique about this letter, and why I've titled um, the overall theme of Galatians to embrace the freedom of the gospel. So I'll read Galatians 5, verses 1 through 10. And again, this is just for introduction, just giving some context for the letter again. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So the situation of the churches in Galatia, these are churches in a region that Paul had been responsible for originally teaching them the gospel, and if you want to think about it in the way of establishing these churches, that Paul had been responsible for starting these churches. But since Paul had been with these brethren, someone had come in, you notice verse 10, the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Seems like mainly there was one person or a few people who were specifically from a Jewish background teaching Gentile Christians that to be justified, they needed to be circumcised and also to keep the law of Moses. And that sets a very frantic, very urgent tone in the letter. In the beginning of Galatians, there is no positive introduction besides talking positively about what God has done for us through Jesus. Usually there's some kind of like, you know, introduction from Paul, I thank God for you for this, this, and this. Whereas in this letter, there is no thankful introduction. Um, instead, he gets right into the problem and the urgency of the problem. Galatians is a letter that can, I think, be undervalued um, because we don't have, like, the Jewish nation existing anymore like it was in this time frame. There's no religious Jews anymore who are teaching that you have to keep the law of Moses, go to Jerusalem, um, be circumcised. There's things like that, and I've even run into brethren sometimes, like wanting to become Jews when they fall away, and like wanting to keep customary Jewish cultural things, um, which I think this letter takes care of to a much more specific extreme than just being a cultural Jew. Um, but besides situations like that, it can, seem, it can seem more irrelevant because it's like, well, you know, circumcision and the law, that was more kind of within a very specific time frame. We don't have struggles like that anymore. But I think this letter is much like Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, where although there are no longer Pharisees or Sadducees anymore, those problems that Jesus had with them specifically and the nature of those problems gave opportunity for bringing 
more clarity to spiritual principles of faith that are much more difficult to understand and grasp. And I suggest to you that's what's going on in Galatians, that this letter has many unique themes and unique problems that even though Romans talks about Jew-Gentile relationships and so do other letters written in the New Testament, this letter specifically deals with these things that very uniquely draw out specific spiritual truths in specific ways that are timelessly relevant. And so that's, that's the hope of studying this letter, that that timelessness can be more evident and that we can be equipped by the unique lessons in Galatians. So for this specific lesson, I've titled this A Gospel-Centered Culture. Because um, I think what Paul is getting to is he's really trying to encourage the Galatian churches to fix their culture locally so that they can, on their own initiative, confront the things that they've allowed to captivate them or allowed to allure them to be severed from Christ. And so we're going to see that throughout this um, beginning section here in, in chapter 1, verse 11, verses 221. So... In the beginning part of chapter 1, we're going to see Paul reflecting on his conversion. What seems implied by all of this, and we talked about this a little bit two weeks ago when we had started in Galatians, that if you were to deal with um, Christians taught by the Apostle Paul, and if you were trying to teach something different than what Paul taught, well, a pretty good way to instill that teaching is you undermine Paul. And if you're able to undermine Paul and maybe suggest that he's not a true apostle or that he's not teaching accurately what the other apostles are teaching, well, then you can have more room to teach things that Paul had not taught before. And so kind of in the beginning, Paul deals with the nature of um, where, where his conversion came from, how he was converted, and what that implies about his authority. And the reason he reflects on these things that I have on the board is he, he reflects on specific aspects of his conversion to give context for arguments he's going to make throughout this letter for the grace of God and against the Judaizing teachers. Because, um, you know, verse 13, he says, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. So he's not telling them anything that he hasn't told them before. They're very aware that Paul had been a Jew and a Pharisee and was now a Christian preaching Jesus but again, he's reflecting on these things again to give context for arguments he's going to make and also to equip the Christians. So I'm going to read verse 11 through the end of the chapter here. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, 
He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. So one of the general things here that, again, I think Paul is arguing is that his teaching and the source of his influence, it didn't come from the other apostles. So he says in verse 11 and 12, you know, this didn't come from man, but we're going to see a lot of emphasis in these first two chapters on Peter, John, and James, particularly Peter and James, as men of great reputation and influence, particularly among Jewish Christians. And so what Paul's going to argue is that the way that he was converted and how he began his ministry as an apostle very clearly demonstrates that his conversion didn't come because he was taught by man, but because of a direct revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that his understanding of the gospel after his conversion was also not something that he had to study with the other apostles to understand, but was directly received from Jesus as well. And this also relates to his overall character as an embodiment of Jesus. Um, If you actually look through verse 16, this is going to be really important, and this is how chapter 2 ends, to reveal his son in me. So it's it's not that Paul was teaching information about the gospel, it's that he was a living embodiment of the truths of the gospel. And I think it's really important that when Paul is going to completely blast the Judaizing teachers, as we read in chapter 5, it's not that he's a Jew hater. It's not that he hates the law of Moses or thinks that there's some inherent problem with the law of Moses. I would even say that you could potentially argue nobody valued the traditions of the Jewish culture, the culture of the Jews, and the law of Moses, at least in a you know worldly way. Nobody valued it more than Saul did before he became the Apostle Paul. Um, if you look in verse 14, he was more extremely zealous for the ancestral traditions. And so Paul's perspective is somebody who values the law, but he values it in its proper context. A tool can be useful and good if it's being used in its proper context, but outside of that context, a tool may actually be self-destructive or counterproductive. Think about a phone, a smartphone. You know, a smartphone has a lot of great utilities, but it's not a hammer. And if I try to use a smartphone to hammer in nails, well, I'm just going to end up breaking the phone and I'm probably not going to be able to hammer in anything anyway. So again, a tool in its proper context has its proper value, but not out of that context. So again, Paul's not a Jew hater. He has no problem with the Jewish culture, but he understands both what it means to be jealous for those things and to value them, but also how to see those things in their right context. And I think something worth noting here in verse 13 and 14, what was going on with Paul's position in the Jewish nation as he was relentlessly trying to actively destroy the church? He was advancing in Judaism. What you see throughout this letter, and again, there's nuances to this. You know, some of these things you've got to explain a little bit. But I think what Paul gets to is ultimately... The Jewish nation, religiously, and Christianity are ultimately not really compatible with each other. That one was going to have to come to, the end, come to an end in order for the other one to be brought to full fruition and to have its proper freedom. He gets to this in chapter 4. When he deals with like the whole bondwoman, free woman thing, and we're children of the free woman, cast out the, bond, uh, the son of the bondwoman. She shall not be heir. He shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Um, 
So I think it's, it's worth noting that what Paul is getting to is when he was trying to advance in rank in the Jewish nation, he was actively destroying the church relentlessly and trying to completely destroy it. Um, so that, that shows a problem with this idea of trying to advance the cause of Judaism and what that really implies about the relationship between that attitude and the gospel. Again, these things will be borne out more as, as the letter goes on. He's, he's setting a context for arguments he'll further make. And I think it's worth noting as well, Paul's going to deal with the fact that it seems heavily implied that the false teachers were trying to use some reference of reputation. And I think that's why he references James and John and Peter so much. As I imagine the false teachers, the Judaizing teachers, could say something like, Jesus, your savior, he was a Jew. Kept the law of Moses. He was circumcised. That's your savior. He was a Jew who was circumcised and kept the law of Moses. Oh, and by the way, all of the apostles, where are they from? Circumcised men. And go to Jerusalem. There they are. And I imagine, you know, again, as a Christian, you could become all things to all men. So I imagine you'd see the apostles in the temple, maybe doing customary things of the law. Not that they were going to impose that on anybody, but certainly if you were among the Jews, you would live like a Jew, right? So imagine how you could be, you know, very persuasive that go look, go to Jerusalem. You'll find the apostles. You'll find them living among the Jews and going to the temple, being, being you know, respectful to the Jewish ways. But what Paul is getting to is when he was converted as this zealous Pharisee, he wasn't trying to leverage this reputation he had accumulated. He went to Arabia for a number of years immediately when he was converted. This reference in verse 17, by the way, kind of fills in a gap that's not in the book of Acts. Um, I, don't, I don't think the purpose of the book of Acts is to detail literally every place Paul ever went post-conversion. And verse 17 in the book of Acts, it does not talk about this journey to Arabia. But I think the idea is Paul didn't go where people knew him. He wasn't going where there was some heavy Jewish pre uh, presence where they'd be like, whoa, this is, oh man, this is Saul. I mean, he was you know, a big-time Jew. No, he's, he's going where nobody knew him. And the reason why Paul, in our estimation now, has some reputation among brethren is not because Paul was trying to gain reputation. It's not that he was using that as a leverage for his teaching. It's that his teaching and his work spoke for itself. I think you see that especially in verse 23. They kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And so the reason Paul is becoming well-known is not because he is now a Jew who is now an even greater Jew among the Jewish nation, but that simply his work and his preaching is speaking for itself. And Paul didn't have time to really gain anything uh, too great from the other apostles. So in verse 18, he went to stay with Cephas, but was only there for 15 days. You imagine for somebody who has to literally relearn everything about what they think they've known, 15 days is not enough time to really learn anything too profound necessarily. I mean, I'm sure you could learn some really important things. But 15 days is not only not enough to learn the degree of things that Paul is preaching, but it also wasn't enough time to form a close and intimate bond with Peter and the other apostles. And I think it shows that Paul's priority was not being validated by his relationship with the other apostles. You know, it wasn't his priority to say like, well, Peter and them, you know, I've known them for years and, you know, they're my good buddies. But 
No, he literally didn't form that much of a relationship with Peter and the other apostles. And again, I, I think this gives context for Paul's point is going to be the people that you reference don't validate your behavior, doesn't validate your teaching. False teaching is false teaching no matter who you're claiming it comes from, no matter who you claim you know. Just because you come from Jerusalem and were born and raised a Jew, or let's say you were even a Pharisee, and let's say you're good buddies with Peter, that does nothing to prove whether or not your teaching is valid. What validates the teaching is if it lines up with the purity of the gospel. And so that's where Paul is going to continue to go here through the entirety of chapter 2. So we're going to see a situation that Paul references 14 years later. He went up to Jerusalem again. So again, Paul's priority was not gaining reputation in Jerusalem, but just doing the work, going among the Gentiles, forfeiting the standing and the attitude that he once had as a Jew. And once he goes to Jerusalem, it is to confront the problem of Judaizing teachers. You know, so there's an irony here that the problems the Galatian churches are facing are problems that have already been discussed among people in Jerusalem and resolved. Well, one thing before we move on that I I meant to bring up. I think one of the points of chapter 1, before we move on, what could the Galatian churches have done? They could have asked Paul about this. You know, one of the things that I run into when I have Bible studies with people is it's always concerning when we study something difficult and a person begins to be convicted about it, then they never talk to me ever again. (laughs) It's like, well, talk to me about it. I mean, if you disagree, like, don't be afraid of continuing to communicate, you know? It's like, let's bear things out and and ask good questions. So I think it's, it's a primary concern of Paul saying, like, look, you can ask me about this. Like, I know the issue. You know I know the issue. Why wouldn't you write me a letter or try to get into contact with me? Why is this separating us and not bringing us closer together? So again, with all of these experiences Paul has in his background, at the very least, they could have sent him a letter and asked, but they hadn't, right? So chapter 2, we'll see with Paul confronting the Judaizing teachers how, how serious this issue was and the kind of need that it had to be confronted. So we'll look at verses 1 through 10 here. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who are of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, Seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the, cir- to the circumcised." They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So again, Paul, after 14 years, and he says in verse 2, it was because of a revelation that he went up. And I think what that's meant to convey 
is it wasn't just that Paul wanted to go and deal with this. It's that God wanted him to go and deal with this. That Paul's perspective, again, the Galatian churches could have written to Paul. They could have given some opportunity for communication here. God wanted Paul's perspective in the meeting of Jewish brethren to figure out what is going on with Jewish Christians teaching churches that are Gentiles that they're supposed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. As a reference, my opinion is that this is the meeting of Acts chapter 15 when they got together in Jerusalem because people were going out from Jerusalem claiming that it was needed for justification for Gentiles basically to become Jews in order to be justified with God. Um, But again, God wanted Paul's perspective in that meeting. And I think you see Paul understood what was at stake. Um, Oftentimes what has to happen for false teaching to have some kind of prominence or for attitudes to gain prominence is it's not dealt with very seriously. But if you look at verse 2, Paul feared that if something was off here, that he might be running or had run in vain. And in verse 4, that what was going on is there were false brethren who were spying out the liberty that Christians had to bring them into bondage. And verse 5, when he mentioned that um, if this wasn't taken care of very urgently, the ripple effect that the truth of the gospel would be hindered in places where it had previously been preached. And so there's a balance here that's, I think, worth noting. That when Paul came to Jerusalem, it wasn't just to assert himself again. And I think this, this gives an example that a person with a good heart is going to be willing to listen. And this would reflect very poorly, I think, on the false teachers at Galatia who wouldn't have this attitude. But if you look at verse 2, Paul submitted to them the gospel that he had been preaching. And so Paul was willing to tell them what he has been teaching. And I think he was willing to very honestly hear feedback from the other apostles. I don't think it's necessarily that Paul had some doubt that, you know, what he was teaching was false doctrine. But I, you know, whatever this was, it was Paul honestly being willing to listen to what the other apostles had to say in uh, verse 9 when it says that James, Cephas, and John were reputed to be pillars, when he's talking about those of high reputation, I, I think in the text it bears out. It's talking about the apostles and James. Um, Paul was open, he was willing to listen, and that shows a lot of humility, but he was also firm and he was frank. And I think that's really important for us to understand. We, my experience is that our culture views it as arrogant to stand firm on anything. You know, if you, if you pretend that you have confidence in what the Bible says is being true and there's so much division in the world and there's very scholarly, very reputable people who think differently, well, who are you to assert yourself? And I, I've been told uh, at times that, hey, this biblical scholar who's been reading the Bible for decades says baptism's not for salvation and you, 30-year-old, what do you know in comparison, right? You're really going to say that this scholar who's written these books and has established himself in the Christian community, that you're going to say he's wrong? Yes. That the Bible and what it says, what Jesus says, we can be willing to talk and willing to listen, but if God speaks plainly on a matter, then it's humility to stand firm in that plainness. 
And so Paul was willing to listen, but the matter of whether or not a, a Gentile should be circumcised is pretty cut and dry. The answer is no. <laughs> but that is counter gospel. That is not acceptable. That's not a part of the purity of what Paul had been teaching or what the other apostles were teaching. And you see that in verse 9. That ultimately the other apostles extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. That it was not a part of the gospel, right? So again, we should be open to listening. But when God is clear, we shouldn't pretend like he's not clear or that things are more confusing than they really actually are, right? So there's a time to listen and there's also a time to be firm and to be frank. And that, that can be done in humility and that is very important. And I think another thing with this too is reputation, titles, roles, doesn't earn a person a right to teach what is not from the Lord or to impose culture or conviction as if it's doctrine. And so I think what you see in um, verse, let's see, where, where did it go? It's, it's eluded me. Verse 6. What they were makes no difference to me. And he's, he's talking about the apostles. And, he's, and again, this, is, this gets back to the whole not trying to please men. You know, the apostles deserve respect. That, that's a very important title. But does that mean that even if an apostle were to say that a Gentile should be circumcised, that now that's the truth? No, if we or even an angel from heaven should teach you any kind of gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. And so not even an apostle deserves an idolized respect where anything they say, anything they do is beyond question. And we're certainly going to see that in the latter half of the chapter where Paul had to take Peter to task publicly, right? So just because someone claims great reputation or might come off as a very intimidating person, gives them no right to teach something that's not the truth. Again, it doesn't mean we don't respect people because I think this is an important part of the gospel that Galatians teaches us. The gospel equips us to love people to an extreme, to respect people to an extreme, to value people to an extreme because of Jesus and the cross without idolizing them without being intimidated by a person in a way that's treating them in a way that only Jesus should be treated. Or, you know, a term I've heard quite a bit um, is preacher worship, you know, where anything the preacher says is true, whatever he does, it's right. And, you know, that kind of borders into the line of idolizing a person rather than just exalting the truth, right? Again, a, a preacher may have an attitude that even though he says right things, my attitude and my behavior is certainly very immature in many ways. And the way that I conduct myself, my choice of conversation is certainly, um, there's many ways where it falls short of Paul's example of Jesus's ministry, things I see exhorted about speech and words and behavior in the New Testament. You know, so there's, there's not one person who because of title, role, whatever, that is exempt from being corrected or even at times needing correction as we're going to see Peter needed it. So for whatever it's worth, and I think this is, you know, verse 9, it's not that Paul is saying like, oh, I needed the apostles' approval. You know, whatever it's worth, Peter, John, and James gave Paul clear approval. Because again, I, I think a problem that the Galatians are facing is it seems very implied that someone who is claiming reputation because of being from Jerusalem knowing the apostles, he's using this as leverage 
to then seduce the Galatians to think that they now need to become Jews. And so if it's a question of what the apostles approve of, then Paul is on the side that we need to be leaning on, not whoever is teaching them these things, right? So for whatever it's worth, not that Paul needed Peter, John, and James to approve of his teaching, they certainly did. And this dismantles potential arguments against Paul. And then finally, properly valuing the poor, verse 10. I think something that we see throughout Galatians is what we believe affects our relationships. What we believe about God and how we connect with God. How do we live with God? It inevitably affects our relationships with each other. And it makes it impossible to value the poor. And what I mean by valuing the poor, I don't mean it makes it impossible to give to the poor or think about the poor. What we see in Jesus is his attitude toward the poor, the broken, and the needy was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. And there is no other philosophy, no other kind of moral thinking that exists in the world that even marginally compares to the way that Jesus valued the poor. And so again, I think Paul is just, he's planting seeds that give a context for bearing things out further that it's not just that these false teachers are giving you the wrong information. It's the ripple effect of what this leads to and the complete breakdown of not just the information of the gospel, but the kind of life that the gospel is meant to create, the kind of values that the gospel creates. So this leads into Paul taking Peter to task. And I think, again, this, this is not just meant to be proving the point that nobody's exempt from correction. But I think it's equipping the Galatian churches like, hey, don't let yourself be so intimidated by a person that you don't openly and directly confront them when it's needed. I had to confront Peter. You can certainly correct the person who is troubling you and disturbing you with this false teaching. 11 through 21. Let's read through this section. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews... How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So again, the setting here, we're going to deal with kind of the setting, and then we'll deal with what Paul specifically says here. But the context is, 
They're in Antioch now, not Jerusalem. So first, Paul went to Jerusalem, had to deal with this issue. Peter comes to Antioch, got to deal with the issue all over again. Mind you, again, these are things that have already happened in the past, right? These issues, these are already things that conversations have already happened. These, these have already been things that have been confronted. Well, Peter comes to Antioch, a primarily Gentile church. And when he was there, certain Jews came from James in Jerusalem. Now listen, these Jews came from James. We have a book of the Bible written by James. He was a very important person. Were these Jews, just because they're from James and would have known him very well, are they exempt from having done anything wrong? Not only do they do what is prejudiced and sinful by pressuring the culture there to withdraw from the Gentile Christians, Peter, who should know better, not only because he denied Jesus because of social pressure. So, I mean, if anyone knows the danger of being pressured socially to deny the truth, it should be Peter. And then, by the way, who was the first person to preach the gospel to a Gentile? and to see, like, very clear evidence that there is no prejudice with God? It was Peter. And then who was it that traveled with Paul, teaching the Gentiles and opposing that Gentiles should keep the law of Moses? Barnabas. It's like, how could, whoa, these men of all people, not Peter, not Barnabas, I mean, how could, how could it be that these men would fall into this? No one's exempt. You know, there's this funny thing, right? Where there's like this assumption that if you teach the truth, you're not vulnerable to error or sin. You know, but really I think what we see is people with reputation, teachers of the gospel, are very often more vulnerable than someone who isn't actively teaching or hasn't accumulated, again, quote-unquote, some reputation. That those things can be very deceptive and so Peter stood in the wrong. Paul says in the way the New American Standard translates that he, he stood condemned. And so he's, he's quite honest and frank about this. And you notice how this is, this is spreading like wildfire. And so Peter holds himself aloof. And then verse 13, it's not just Barnabas. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. And then Barnabas is carried along with them as well. Social pressure is powerful. Man, I think the persecution that we face oftentimes is highly underestimated. You know, no one's holding a gun to our head saying, deny Jesus or die. You know, we're not being threatened with being beheaded for our faith. But I think we've got to be really careful to understand social pressure is subtle, but it is, it is so powerful and it is so dangerous. And it can cause us to do things that are sinful. And we can get carried along with, with ridiculous things. You know, and I think, I think this, this section, and, and all of Galatian bears out something that is important to, I think, note, is all prejudices, I think, are, are covered with this whole Jew-Gentile thing. So skin color racism, you know, racism because of, you know, social class, social state, any, any, any of those things, any of those prejudices are abhorrent and anti-gospel. But there's been times in history where, you know, you've got white church where white people go. Then you've got black church where darker skinned people go. And 
the two are separated and even teachers among brethren would write articles saying that that's the way it should be biblically and wow you know you look back on that and, and, and you're just shocked and ashamed social pressure what is pressured socially very easily just becomes the norm and is very accepted you know the attitude of the day and so again with with things of prejudice or attitude we really need to be careful to be aware of the kind of culture we develop socially here, the kind of attitudes we cultivate socially here, and we need to be very, very aware of what are the dominant influences at work in the culture of a local church. And I want you to notice Paul perceives what is being taught by behavior. So he says they're not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. What does he mean? Nobody's saying anything, certainly, right? So what, what's silently being conveyed is Jews need to be, or Gentiles rather, need to be Jews. You look at verse 14, notice the end. How is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? How is Peter doing that? By his behavior. Because of withdrawing from the Gentiles when the Jews were around, his behavior was message enough. And what they weren't doing with being straightforward is this needed to be confronted by somebody. And I imagine Paul's just kind of watching this play out where he's just waiting. Is, is anybody going to say anything? Well, there goes Peter. Okay, well, is Barnabas going to say something? Well, wow, there goes Barnabas. And well, the rest of the Jews are there too. So eventually it's like, okay, no one's going to say anything. And we need to be straightforward about this truth that there is no partiality and we, we cannot let this Go on. And you notice Paul understood the ripple effect of what was being implied. He didn't just talk about how this would compel Gentiles to think they need to be Jews. But 15 through the end of the chapter, the ripple effect goes into what's the relationship between the law of Moses and faith? What's our relationship to Jesus? You know, so what, what may look like an innocent social setting, well, you know, they're eating over there. And they're eating over there. What's the harm? You know, Paul sees that this, this is a total breakdown of everything that Jesus died for, a complete collapse of it all, on a social level, on a congregational level, on a personal level. And so again, somebody's got to say something here. So with what he said, consider the importance of a question in verse 14. Paul starts with an extremely thoughtful and convicting question. And I think when dealing with correction, Questions are great ways to give correction because that forces someone to think for themselves about what they're doing, right? And I think his question is brilliant in verse 14. Is it being implied that Peter was even living like a Jew anymore? If you live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, Peter had let go of the stranglehold of Jewishness. He was, he was living among the Gentiles as a Gentile. And we're going to see played out through Galatians, that is a proper application of your relationship to the law is to die to those things to then spread the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's saying, how is it that you have chosen to live like a Gentile now and you're going to compel Gentiles to live like Jews? So again, the value of a question. And I think what he gets into next in verse 17 and 18, some... I think a little more challenging statements. You know, if, if we, while seeking to be justified in Christ, 
have been also found sinners as Christ and the minister of sin. May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I think the idea is what Paul's needing to do is, is clarify something like, hey, everybody, Jesus is not represented by what Peter is doing. Peter is proving himself a transgressor. Jesus does not advocate for that. He is acting in complete independence from everything that Jesus stands for, right? And I'm sure you've seen this as I've seen it, how often somebody abandons their faith because they don't separate sins of people from Jesus himself. And I have a friend who, on social media, this is somebody who has fallen away, someone on social media who will lambast the elders of the church where they last attended, even though they've been with a lot of good congregations. They have completely abandoned their faith because of what they perceive to have mistreatment by three elders in one congregation. Now, I don't know the whole story. Maybe they did wrong. I don't know. But it's certainly not worth throwing your whole faith away because people mistreated you. Because people, even people in leadership, are not exempt from making mistakes, misrepresenting Jesus. And so we need to learn to separate people's sins from Jesus himself. And that's, I think, what Peter was really doing in the situation is we've got to separate what Peter is doing from Jesus because this is a misrepresentation of the gospel. And in, in pressuring the values of Judaism, it demonstrated a catastrophic misunderstanding of the values of Jesus and the cross. I think that's what we see in verses 19 through 21. There was a catastrophic misunderstanding of the values of the cross in relation to the law. I want to mention some things here to lead into chapter 3 in a couple weeks when we come back to Galatians about the law in relationship to faith that, again, we'll see borne out that are alluded to here in 19 through 20, how the law couldn't justify by the works of the law, nobody can be justified. The law was perfect as a testimony, as a means of salvation. What Hebrews would say is it's weak and worthless. That's not to say that the law is not good for what it is, that it's also not perfect for what it is. It is perfect as a testimony. But as a means of justification, it is weak, it is worthless. Look at chapter 3, 21 and 22. This, this is a section that has really helped me understand kind of like the point that Paul is trying to make here. To me, this is just speaking in very clear terms. 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has set up, shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So I, I want to try to detail this, and I think this will be borne out as we go in the series in chapter 3 especially. The law testified to the righteousness of God, but it was not the righteousness of God. The law testified to the problem of sin, but the law did not resolve that problem or fix that problem. The law testified to many spiritual realities, to who God is, but it was itself not that reality, and it also was powerless to bring you into that reality with God. The law could not necessarily, um, the law was not faith, and that's borne out in chapter 3 as well, but the law 
The law could lead you to faith. Even though it was not faith, it, it could lead you to faith. It testified to faith. The law testified to God's forgiveness. But as Hebrews 10 says, the sacrifice and blood of animals, bulls and goats, it was impossible for them to take away sins. So although the law testified to forgiveness, it could not forgive you. The law testified to the identity that we're meant to have with God, but it itself did not give that identity. That's also in chapter 3, and we'll see in chapter 4. However, Jesus, especially pictured through his crucifixion and his resurrection, is the reality of all of these things the law pointed to. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Jesus' death and resurrection, it reveals both the extent and the full reality of sin. But Jesus' death and resurrection fully resolves and reveals that problem. Jesus is the embodiment of all spiritual reality. He is that reality in a sense. The idea is Colossians would say the fullness of God is in him. He is the center of all things. He is the source of all things. To him belongs all things. Jesus himself is faith. He is our source of faith. He perfects our faith. Chapter 3 will again bear this out. And through Jesus, we truly, we truly experience the reality of redemption and reconciliation with God. Through Jesus, we have an identity of being children of God. The law testified to these things, but it was not itself any of these things. One of the things as well that I think Paul is getting to is the law also could not deal with the extent of the extreme problem of sin. Only Jesus deals with the extent of the extreme problem of sin. So in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law. Again, the law pointed you to the problem. It said like, hey, look, there is a problem. You need to die. <laughs> it's hopeless. You cannot be justified by your own works or by merit of law. You need something more. You need God to act on the testimony of what the law points to. And so through the law, he died to the law that he might live to God. And he's been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The extent of our need for God, the extent of how damaging sin has been in our lives, our, our need for God, the extremity of that need, the law does not deal with the extent of those needs. Only the grace that comes to the cross in verse 21. Only the grace that comes through Jesus adequately deals with how extreme our needs are. So if righteousness was possible through the law, what chapter 3 verse 21 says, then it would have been based on law. But the law reveals how impossible that is. Not that the law is bad, it's perfect for what it is, but as a means of justification, it's, it's weak. can't do that. And so ultimately what this does, and I think this is what Paul really perceives, is this ends up undermining how God works in us and his rule in our lives. To what extent in verse 20 is God dominating Paul's life? To what extent is Paul living for God? He says, it's not even I who live anymore. It is Christ living in me. Ultimately, this ends up undermining the rule of God. Jesus did not just come to rule over certain behaviors. 
He came to rule over our innermost being and dwell in us to accomplish his work, his will, through his grace. And so the problem that Paul perceives, again, the the ripple effect of what's being implied here is that this is undermining the dominance of Christ, the dominance of the cross over us. Last point for this morning. You can read this and think like, well, certainly this seems to have been a breakdown of Paul's relationship with Peter. You know, man, it's like, could they recover from this? I would suggest that that's ridiculous. That's the wrong lens to see this through. You know, to illustrate this, um, if you remember the animated cartoon Sleeping Beauty, you know, there's a scene that I found very disturbing when I was a kid where, like, she's going up the stairs to put her finger on the spindle and fall asleep. And, like, she's wandering there and the little fairies are, like, trying to catch up to her to stop her. Because, again, like, she touches the spindle, she's going to go to sleep and suffer a curse. And I remember you thinking, like, man, catch her, catch her, catch her. And sure enough, they don't make it on time. But I think what Peter would perceive about Paul it's like his finger's going to the spindle and Paul had grabbed his hand and said, Stop! Look where you're going! And the attitude isn't, Well, who do you think you are? Think you're better than me? It's like, No, whoa, thank God that you did this for me. Like, wow, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Because the culture of the cross is not that we're in competition with each other or that if I'm humiliated by my sin, like that's the end of the world or that, you know, if you correct me, then you're saying you're better than me or asserting yourself over me. It's like, no, 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 no. The goal of the cross, its highest ambition is to seek the lowest position. And so anything that puts me lower just ends up exalting the cross in my relationship with Jesus. So to think that this would strain Peter's relationship with Paul is ridiculous. That's that's definitely not what happened. And you see that with Peter, the way he talks about Paul in his letter, 2 Peter, whatever. But I don't even think we need that. I don't think we need Peter to write something good about Paul. I think we can just understand inherently that the cross creates a heart that is willing to receive correction with grace. It may be challenging sometimes, but it's for our good. And being corrected can oftentimes be one of the healthiest things that develops our faith. And it certainly would have developed Peter's faith here and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews and the Galatian churches. So imagine if Paul said nothing. Imagine if he was too afraid, too timid, just let all this happen. Well, that's where we'll end this morning. I appreciate your patience very, very much as we talk through all of these things. Um, if you're here this morning and you are not united with Jesus, the, the, the chasm that exists between being an adopted child of God and being destined for wrath, don't let time go by allowing for that separation to continue to exist in your life when the opportunity is so available. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing. Our invitation song.